From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Tonight, in the first hour, we pay tribute to the late Stanton Friedman, the grandfather of ufology. Roswell investigator Don Schmidt will join us. He's standing by. Don really picked up the mantle of, of Stanton, who was an early civilian investigator of the alleged UFO crash near Roswell, New Mexico. Uh, coming up in the second hour, haunted and cursed objects. Uh, now, Rosemary Ellen Guiley was to be with us, but Rosemary is not feeling well tonight. Uh, in fact, she just moved out to Seattle. Uh, and in her absence, paranormal investigator and author Ross Allison will join us. Ross is also from Seattle. And he may be uh, joining us live from his death museum. Uh, we're hoping that we can uh, get him on the YouTube live stream, uh, the video, and uh, he may have a few haunted objects to show us. For those of you checking us out on the YouTube live stream, the YouTube channel, incidentally, is Strange Planet. Uh, in the second half, uh, incidentally, of our two, we'll open up the phone lines for questions and comments. Perhaps you have an object you suspect is haunted or cursed, and we'd love to hear about it. Uh, Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is my live stream producer. And again, we are live streaming tonight on YouTube. Check out the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Don't forget to hit the, hit the red sub button. Stanton Friedman is responsible for bringing the Roswell UFO incident into mainstream conversation. A nuclear physicist by training. Stanton devoted his life to researching and investigating UFOs since the late 1960s. Now, he officially retired last year, but kept uh, doing uh, speaking engagements simply because he loved talking about UFOs. And he was returning to his home in Fredericton from a speaking en engagement in Columbus, Ohio, when he died suddenly at the Toronto Pearson Airport on May 14th, Stan was 84 years old. This hour, we pay tribute to Stanton Friedman. Donald Schmidt is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. Prior to that time, Don was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek and the art director for the International UFO Reporter. He and Thomas Carey, his writing partner for nearly 20 years, have already outlined their next writing collaboration. He is the author of hundreds of articles about UFOs, as well as the co-author of five best-selling books, UFO Crash at Roswell, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell, Witness to Roswell, uh, The Witness to Roswell Revised Edition, Inside the Real Area 51, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson, He's also the author of Roswell, the Chronological Pictorial. Don has led and organized four official archaeological dig projects at the actual Roswell Crash Debris Field in 1989, 2002, 2006, 
2013. The second effort became the central theme of the highest rated show up to that time in the history of the Sci-Fi Channel. The Roswell crash, startling new evidence. And I should point out, I mentioned his writing collaboration with Thomas Carey, his latest book now out with Thomas, and it's called UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson, Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. Don Schmidt, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. It's been a while. How are you? It has been, and so good to be back with you, Richard. Now, just set the table. You know, after the Roswell crash in 1947... There was a big flap for a while. It died off quickly. And then it was really lost to the world until late 1970s. And again, Stanton Friedman obviously played a huge role in reopening the Roswell case. Take us back to the late 70s and Stanton Friedman's meeting with Jesse Marcel. Yes. Well, Marcel was the head of intelligence at the 509th Bomb Group at the Roswell Army Airfield back in 1947. He was the uh, the central officer who not only was uh, first sent out to investigate the uh, the crash, but then would become the patsy, the fall guy. He was ordered away from Roswell up the chain of command, and then he participated in the balloon the infamous balloon press conference where he was ordered to pose with the substituted weather balloon with the radar reflector kite, the Rowan target device, as it was called at that time, and um, sworn to secrecy, told not to say another word to the press, until 30 years later he was dying of emphysema and realizing that it wasn't coming out. It was one of the things that Marcel had been assured of time and time again. You know, just be a good soldier, Jess. It'll all come out in the next five years, ten years. You'll be vindicated. You'll be a hero. And um, you know, the rest will be history. Well, 30 years later, he realizes it's not coming out. And he breaks his oath. He goes public. And um, one of the people that was immediately tipped off to, you know, you know, Stan, who you should talk to is this retired lieutenant colonel who actually handled pieces of a flying saucer. And Marcel, you know, was uh, reluctant at first, but Stan, for his dogged determination and realizing that he potentially had a tiger by the tail, and Stan was like me in that we, we always have preferred nuts and bolts. Uh, the, the same with Dr. Heineck, and I could not be more fortunate in that I got to work with both Dr. Heineck and, and, and Stanton Friedman. And both of them, they like to, as I would say, be able to go across the street and kick the tires, so to speak. And right. he, he realized that with Marcel that, uh, my God, if he's telling the truth, we're talking potentially about the biggest story of the millennium. And the rest is history. Because within the next two years, it would lead to the first book on Roswell, Roswell Incident, which was co-authored by Charles Berlitz and uh, William Moore. Stan did, uh, you know, the, the bulk of the research and the interviews of the witnesses for that book. And he unfortunately only received an acknowledgement, whereas he was the crux. He was the one that started this. And uh, as I've often said, that he championed as far as the Roswell incident, in that there wasn't a witness, there wasn't a story, a rumor, 
that he would turn a deaf ear to, that if it had anything to do with the possible breakthrough of what transpired back in 1947. Uh, Stan was, you know, Johnny on the spot, and I love that about him. I love the fact that uh, when we had that conversation in the fall of 1988, and I asked him, Stan, do you believe you've talked to all the witnesses? Do you feel you've taken the case as far as you, you possibly can? And he re- responded, well, no, Don, absolutely not. You know, there's probably hundreds of witnesses still out there, and I could use some help. And I was a skeptic. I can't emphasize that enough, Richard. Uh, you know, we thought we'd make a single weekend jaunt down to New Mexico and, you know, wrap this up, that it was nothing more than a balloon or something just as uh, prosaic, just as conventional. But Stan was right. I mean, I... I, I I, I am proud to admit that I was wrong about Roswell, <laughs> and Stan was 100% right, that it indeed was the crash of a craft of unknown origin that was not manufactured on this planet. What was your aha moment? Was it in conversation with Stan? Did he introduce you to somebody that convinced you? The first ten witnesses who actually handled the wreckage, one by one, the consistency, the the descriptions of this unusual, this strange, super-sophisticated material that defied conventional explanation. And one by one, we realized, my God, they're not describing anything conventional. It's hardly, you know, any semblance of a balloon or anything, you know, of that magnitude. And still, here we are now, it's 30 years later, when you think about it. And we've just about, we're on the one foot yard line, so to speak, as far as witnesses go. World War II generation and Stan and, and myself, we often, in doing interviews, we would remind potential witnesses. We would often, you know, describe to the audiences that we're racing with the undertaker, that eventually they will win. But the very thought that because we have been totally committed and devoted to this for the past 30 years, and in Stan's case, 40 years before just passing, that we believe that, as we've been told many times, that we could take this in any court of law and win hands down, that just the uh, 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 preponderance of circumstantial eyewitness testimony from military high-ranking officers to media press personnel to all the civilians involved and they're all reading from the same script as you know richard they're all describing you know that you know the same type of characteristics of the wreckage and then when we get to the bodies also you you know the identical descriptions so as i said they're either all reading from the same script or they're recounting precisely what they witnessed back in 1947 was stanton initially a skeptic as well about Roswell? Did he ever confide in you about that? Well, Stan was far from a skeptic, even in his beginning years. I I think it was the one thing that attracted and drew him away from his work as a nuclear physicist and realizing that this was a much bigger story. As you would call it, the Cosmic Watergate, and he was quick to label it the the cover-up that I, too, am now convinced and has, has been demonstrated time and time again with the whistleblowers, with the people, even to this day, that are coming forward. And we realize that the truth has been withheld 
especially back since 1947. So I think Stan, as I would say, I came into it with a very healthy skepticism, yet, yet, yet Stan came into it as far as with both legs running, that he was, was quick to jump on the case, and he created a momentum that then we, we picked up on. And we realized that lest we get caught with our, our pants down, so to speak, that we needed to treat it as though it was genuine, as though it was potentially the, you know, this earth, uh, this earth shattering announcement. And that it was just a matter of, you know, reaching that crescendo where we would have that breakthrough. And as Stan and I would often discuss it, no matter who would win, we all win. We want to be in the race. We want to be at the goal line when either one of us, you know, finally crosses that line. And tonight I would announce, as far as to all your audience, that I am more committed than ever to finish what Stan Freeman started back in 1978. I was going to ask you about, and you sort of answered part of the question, but you mentioned earlier the Roswell incident. That was really the first book, period, about Roswell with Berlitz and Moore. And then there was yourself and Kevin Randall in 91 with UFO crash at Roswell. And we had Stanton's book, A Year After Yours, Crash at Corona with a a Berliner. But was there a friendly competition amongst all of you to see, you know, who could find the next big witness, who could uncover that next piece of the puzzle? It was beyond competitive at times, and it wasn't who was going to solve the case at times as much as we would deal with witnesses that either party we did not agree with, we did not accept, they were describing another scenario, another timeline, as though they were distracting us, diverting us from uh, the main uh, pursuit of the case. And we had some, you know, drawn out, almost like professional wrestling, no-holds-barred type of arguments in public as far as disputes, as far as and exchanges of correspondence and face-to-face. The the wonderful thing was that at the end of the day, we could always shake hands and we had a respect for one another. We respected each other's research. We respected the the point being that we had to at least uh, retain not only a united front, but, and, and I will give Stan, again, all the credit for the fact that as much and at times that we disagreed on certain aspects of Roswell, that whenever we would be doing a program together, we would do a, be, you know, interviewed for a documentary uh, piece together, that we had a standing professional agreement that we would only discuss that which we agreed on, that it was never a case publicly, well, you disagree with this, or I say this, you know, even though you don't believe in it, and that's where the competition always took a back seat that when it came to professionalism, professional courtesy, we always presented a united front in public. And I tip my hat to my late good friend, Stanton Friedman, because he always honored that agreement, and I know I always did as well. What did Stanton make of the testimony of the undertaker in Roswell, Glenn Dennis, who talked about the tiny coffins he was called from the airfield how many tiny coffins do you have etc did yep. he believe that he was credible yes he did right up to the end and glenn dennis we spent a, a good amount of time not only trying to verify and and uh, 
find out as far as the true of uh, you know story the history of the nurse he described uh we pretty much uh are convinced that the phone calls to the Ballard funeral home did indeed take place they uh we discovered multiple witnesses a former attorney a former chief of police a former a former ambulance driver who all described to us that within days after the incident that Glenn was confiding to them about the bizarre phone calls from the base hospital regarding the uh, availability of these child-sized caskets. And then we spoke to the son of the very truck driver who was on contract with the funeral home who actually made the unscheduled drive all the way from Roswell to Amarillo, Texas, where they would acquire their regular uh, caskets and that he indeed picked up a number of child-sized caskets. And the son described to us when they returned back to Roswell that much of the city had been cordoned off, that they had to circle to the west coming in from the east and then wind their way in the town just attempting to get to the funeral home. His father would drop him off and wouldn't return to the next morning, and then he told him, son, it's true. It was all true what, you know, what uh, the, the, the funeral home required the caskets for. Now, now Stan was the first one. Now, we had a bit of a race as to who was going to talk to the mortician mm-hmm. Glenn Dennis first. And Stan did get to him uh, just a matter of days before we did. And, and, but from then on, it was still a mutual cooperation, and we worked together on establishing Glenn Dennis's bona fides, so to speak. And uh, there was never any dispute. And, uh, you know, this, this competition of, well, I spoke to him first, or, well, but we got more information <laughs> on him later, you know, that type of thing. No, no, no. We, um, again, uh, our disputes at times were in regards to witnesses that turned out either to be legitimate or uh, discredited after the fact. And there were times that I honestly had to say to Stan, you were right, you were absolutely right, and I apologize, you were right on that one. The other uh, amazing uh, witness testimony came from the New Mexico Lieutenant Governor, Joseph Montoya. I first heard this story from you uh, yeah. down in uh, the UFO Congress. You told it to me from one of my TV episodes. Uh, I remember that, yes. Just we, uh, uh, walk us through... Outside. Yes. Yes. Walk us through Montoya's testimony. This is the lieutenant governor, basically second in charge in the state next to the governor, uh, who happened to be at the airfield that day. But uh, talk, just tell the listeners who he was, what he saw, and then then we can talk about what Stanton thought of his testimony. Well, you are correct in that he was in Roswell at the time. That has been confirmed. He was there for the dedication of a new aircraft. And um, to us, it made... Uh, it, it made sense in that as they were attempting to come up with answers and there was nothing in the Army field manual as far as how to deal with the recovery, the retrieval of a crash saucer, and, and certainly the remains, the bodies, the crew that were part of that particular crash. And Matoya, the lieutenant governor, just happening to be there, we've also confirmed that he, he was staying at the Nixon Hotel in downtown Roswell, and we even interviewed his former uh, 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 driver by the name of Red Worley, who picked him up later after 
two of um, Montoya's friends, close friends, they were two brothers by the name of Pete and Ruben Anaya. John, I've got to, pardon my interruption, I've got to jump in here. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back, continue to talk about Lieutenant Governor Joseph Montoya, what he saw at Roswell, and our special tribute to the late Stanton Friedman, Don Schmidt, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Well, let's face it, there have been literally thousands of pilot sightings. The problem is pilots don't want to stick their necks out because they're afraid of losing their job. And so there is an organization to which they can report their sighting without having their name be attached to it. Somebody has the rules, if you will, uh, the entry books. And uh, Dr. Richard Haynes is the primary scientist of this group. He worked for NASA, was a scientist for NASA for many years, and he has written even written some books about uh, pilot sightings, say, in, um, in Southeast Asia and in other places. Oh, and I'm not hearing the clip. And, you know... Uh, I fly a lot. I sure hope that the guy who's running that airplane knows what's going on around him and keeps his eyes open and avoids any problems with uh, an unplanned interaction with another vehicle. Uh, so I tend to trust pilots, especially when you get a consistency of reports, the behavior as well as the appearance. Uh, you know, we don't have, so far as we know, airplanes that can start, stop, move straight up, straight down, silently, make right-angle turns without slowing down first and then speeding up after they make the turn. Obviously, such ca- characteristics would be great for military systems. Uh, if we had them, we'd use them. Uh, and there have been a few wars in which we have used airplanes. Uh, and so uh, I-, I think... I like pilot sightings. I'm not saying pilots are infallible. Uh, nobody's infallible. But, you know, the question isn't, are all UFO sightings alien spacecraft? The question is, are any? And our answer is yes, very definitely. They're manufactured vehicles that haven't been made on Earth. That means they come from someplace else. Very straightforward. And we are back with Don Schmidt. That was a clip from the man himself, the late... Stanton Friedman, who passed away May 14th at the age of 84, and coming back, of course, from a UFO event. How fitting for Stanton, who dedicated his uh, his life, certainly the last uh, 45, 50 years of his life, to investigating not only Roswell, but uh, UFOs and the existence of ETs in general. Don Schmidt, my guest, and uh, Don, before the break... Uh, we were uh, discussing Lieutenant Governor Joseph Montoya, uh, who was at the Roswell Army uh, Airfield on that day, and uh, he was there to dedicate a new aircraft. Uh, just uh, just finish up that story, and then we'll talk about what Stanton thought of um, of, of Montoya's testimony. Well, the other interesting thing about uh, now here it is the Fourth of July weekend, and. 
we could find all types of press accounts where all the state dignitaries were and participating with uh, holiday uh, activities, parades, and fireworks displays and everything. There's absolutely nothing. We have not in 30 years been able to find a single account describing the whereabouts of the lieutenant governor of that holiday weekend here in the States. And yet we have been able to confirm he was in Roswell. That probably, you know, therein lies the, the, the problem in establishing his whereabouts. But he was taken to building P3. It was a, a building, it was a hangar called uh, 84. And it's where the wreckage and the bodies transited through. And he was actually shown the bodies. And one of them was alive. He described the movement of the one. And that's when he called up one of the uh, young people, a young uh, gentleman that he had known for years. They were part as far as of his uh, a campaign, as far as in getting elected, as far as lieutenant governor, and then thereafter when he became senator of New Mexico. And uh, basically, get me out of here. Pick me up right now. Which they did. They took him out to the house, and all he, you know, he kept stating over and over again, they weren't human. They weren't human. And then later he would threaten, he would warn them that if you ever repeated anything I've told you, I will say you are liars, and I will deny everything that you would say about me. And so uh, the families were paid visits by the military thereafter, also warning them to keep their mouth shut about the situation. Uh, Montoya would never mention this to any of his family, but, but nonetheless, we heard it from three separate witnesses that he indeed, you know, was there. He made such comments. He described what had transpired. And I will, it was a case that we, a witness that we first interviewed as far as regarding the uh, secondhand testimony. And, and Stan was always quick to ask anything new. Is there anything new that you've come up with regarding Montoya? Because we're talking of a high-ranking official. We're talking lieutenant governor. Then he would go on to become a high-ranking senator in the United States representing New Mexico. And so it, well, he would have been a tremendous witness. And Stan realized that we needed to always look for the high-ranking officials, the high-ranking officers, politicians, the media people involved, because these are the type of witnesses that would always up the importance of Roswell, that we weren't just dealing with uh, a rancher, for example, who first discovered uh, the, the wreckage. We weren't dealing with uh, children who would be later threatened because they happened to see the wrong thing at the wrong time, that type of thing. So, so Stan was often on the sidelines encouraging us that if it was a witness that we had learned of, had discovered, it was, he was always quick. What's new on so-and-so? What can you tell me you knew as far as regarding so-and-so? Have you, you corroborated, have you validated, uh, you know, anything you've been working as far as on that particular individual? So that's where the competition always became, we're working together. We're, we're, you know, we're working towards the same cause, and no matter how we parallel our approaches, our investigations, we still always merge, we still always come back, that Roswell indeed was the crash of a craft from off the planet.
What did Stanton think of your your excavations at at the uh, crash debris field? One of the, the major disputes I had with Stan was for having interviewed Jesse Marcel, senior, the head of intelligence, the man who was out there, the man who, as far as the first officer on the scene, that they never took him back to the scene of the crime, so to speak. And because Marcel had passed away in 1986, so it was a good three years before we started our own independent investigation. So I, I, I wouldn't be critical of Stan. I would just kind of always remind him. It's like, damn it, Stan, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you take him out there? That type of thing. And in, in, this, in Stan's defense, it was, it, was, it was quite honestly the fact that because they were spending so much time just tracking down witnesses, and it was at a time that we didn't have the internet. We we had to, you know, actually doggedly track down witness leading to another witness and to another witness and so on before we finally would get to the the primary, you know, witness we were looking for. Now you just you know type in a name and you can get the whole history of anybody. Right. Back then we spent uh, Kevin Randall and I, we used to we used to talk about we'd spend between the two of us a thousand dollars a month just on our phone bills. Wow! Tra- again, tracking down witnesses, and that's what Stan had been doing before us and was still doing. So it was totally forgivable that he found it more important to keep the race going, to keep as far as the effort going and tracking down the witnesses. So, again, when we were doing the archaeological work, Stan was always rooting. He was always, did you find anything? Is there anything I can help with? And uh, it was never a case of, oh, there they are again, trying to outdo me or come up with something that, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's never going to happen. He, um, again, our victory or vice versa would have been our victory. And, again, I couldn't have had a, a greater ally in that regard. Did he ever think about moving out there, out to, to Roswell or to that area, just because he was so, as you were, just so wrapped up with it, so involved, almost on a daily basis at that time? And that was often his excuse, Richard, that because he was so removed, you know, way up in the northeast corner of Fredericton, you know, New Brunswick, Canada, that um, he didn't get to New Mexico as often as he would have liked. I mean, on the average, we were getting to New Mexico five, six times a year. And Stan, you know, maybe once or twice. And so he often relied on us to fill that void, to uh, to pick up those uh, opportunities with new witnesses and then update him, report after the fact that uh, we always had to stand the agreement as well that if, if Stan came up with witnesses that more closely endorsed our scenario, he would immediately turn them over to us, and we in turn would do the same with Stan. All right, Don, so, I've got to take another quick time out. We'll uh, come back and delve further into the incredible life and work of Stanton Friedman. My guest, Don Schmidt, the author of UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson, stays with us. Back with more in a moment. Thank you. 
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. We are here with Don Schmitz, and uh, his latest is uh, in which he co-authors with uh, Thomas Carey is UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson, Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. We are paying tribute to the late Stanton Friedman, who passed away last month, May 14th, at the age of 84. Uh, getting back to Roswell for a moment. Ironic that uh, we had Stan write the forward. Yes. Yes. How ironic indeed. And so um, little did we know, but we felt, you know, I I have three messages from Stan on my answer machine over just the last month. And I saved them because I sensed something was in the offing. Yes. And um, I just didn't believe it was going to be this soon. And Stan was ailing otherwise, and so we were more concerned that uh, he would uh, diminish in his uh, capabilities as uh, lecturing and doing interviews and and that type of thing. But we certainly didn't believe it was going to go this quickly. Well, he had sort of officially, quote, end quote, retired because he had he was recovering from a, 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 that other heart attack. Uh, but he just couldn't stay away, could he? I mean, it was, such, it was no, just in no. his blood. And the, the saddest part of it is, is, like, someone just said to me the other day, the last place you want to die is in an airport in front of, you know, a, a hundred strangers. And that just for the sake of a few hours that he could have been home. And that right. was the the other reason in his retiring that he felt his that with his wife Mariana that he could finally spend you know some quality time with her, and yet the they were the the, the the audiences the people were still pulling. They still you know wanted the you know the foremost authority they essentially come to their town come to their city and enlighten them, and uh, he couldn't say no. I guess you could say that really he went out doing what he loved, and that was traveling to these places and talking about UFOs. And we should Uh, all be so lucky, Richard, yes. Yes, indeed. This is a short segment. We just got a couple of minutes here. But do you have a favorite personal Stanton Friedman story that's special to you? He had a wonderful sense of humor. And I used to tell him jokes all the time. And whenever... We would be in a situation that was a little tense. I knew I could always break the ice, so to speak, and tell him a good joke. And he would laugh at times to the point he would start crying. (laughs) And no matter what, he just always looked on the bright side of things. A more positive person I have seldom encountered. And there were times that we would be in the field working together, interviewing witnesses there'd be other times where we'd be racing to the airport at four o'clock in the morning from roswell back up to albuquerque and uh, a, a quick story i wasn't there but i was told right after it had happened that stan had just spoken in amsterdam and some lady had presented him with a gift of some chocolate brownies and he was packing up his table and getting ready to head back to the airport and uh, someone yells out, Mr. Friedman, Mr. Friedman, 
I hope you're not taking those brownies with you, are you? And he said, well, no, it's, they look delicious. I'll have them on the way home. And she went, well, no, you, you, you can't, you can't. Well, why not, Stan asked. And she says, well, because they're full of marijuana. <laughs> and, and Stan, without missing a beat, he just, oh, my God, would have been hell getting through customs. <laughs> <laughs> when you said Amsterdam and brownies, I had a feeling I knew where that was going. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and Stan, he could be so naive at times, and then at other times, he could build a rocket ship. Right. Imagine being a nuclear physicist and having that kind of a job, that kind of a career, and then to give that up to study UFOs. Was that a tough decision for him, do you know? Yes and no, because whether he had, uh, he had worked like uh, with General Motors or even General Electric and uh, Rockwell, for example, there were a lot of uh, 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 broken contracts he would describe. There were a lot of times that they felt they were on the brink of, uh, you know, a major breakthrough with some of the, uh, the new prototype, uh, new uh, engine and reactor devices and so on. And, uh, you know, again, he'd get a pink slip, like, I'm sorry, you know, your services are no, lo- no longer uh, needed. And I-, I think he may have had some reservations, but I think this was then making that quantum jump into where it actually was applied. And he then, in you know, seeking new propulsion and new technology for going to the stars, here he was actually meeting it halfway. He was, you know, investigating the phenomena that actually had mastered the technology, had arrived here, and Stan was in the vanguard, you know, extending his hand and saying, welcome. And so uh, I think uh, he, he knew he was doing the right thing, and certainly we all would applaud and, uh, and uh, are convinced he did the right thing. All right, Don, one final time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to pay tribute to the great man, Stanton Friedman, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. When the Russians and the United States were going at each other in the beginning of the Cold War, uh, as nuclear weapons were developed and the United States got caught a little bit short, the Russians were much faster at jumping on the nuclear bandwagon than anybody expected them to be. The head of the program, General, uh, the general who was in charge of the Manhattan Project, thought in 1948 it would take the Russians eight years before they exploded their first nuclear weapon. So what do we have to worry about? Besides, they don't even have a means for reaching us. Well, it took them only a year after that. 1949 was the first uh, Soviet nuclear weapon. And they developed ICBMs, and people forget. The reason we went to the moon was to show that we're as good as the Russians because they had the first satellite, they had the first flight around the moon, they had the first animal in space, the first man in space, the first woman in space, the first to see the other side of the moon, uh, we were getting creamed. And so the, you know, the program, the, the lunar, uh, the Apollo program was, was set up. Uh, but 
along the way, there were negotiations going on as they both recognized that uh, mutually assured destruction didn't seem a, a great way for the world to proceed. You hit me, I'll hit you back, and we'll both get destroyed. That's That doesn't make sense for any government. And I, I should mention that there was this enormous increase in the power of the nuclear weapons. The first one released the energy of about 16,000 tons of dynamite. That's in 1945. The first H-bomb in 1952 released the energy of 10 million tons of dynamite. And the Russians set up one, set off one, uh, a few years later that released the energy of 57 million tons of dynamite. One stinking weapon. And I use that term advisedly. And we are back. That was uh, Stanton Friedman. Stanton, I wish I'd had him on the program more, but that was his last appearance back in 2016. He was on with uh, Kathleen Marden, who, of course, is the uh, the niece of uh, Betty and Barney Hill, the great, uh, the most uh, famous alien abduction case, of course, involving Betty and Barney Hill, Kathleen, the niece. And uh, she and Stanton wrote, I believe, three books uh, together. Uh, Don Schmidt is with us, Roswell investigator and uh, a colleague and friend of Stanton Friedman. We pay tribute to Stanton tonight. Uh, just a, a heads up, coming up in the next hour, uh, Ross Allison will be with us from Seattle, paranormal investigator, author, stepping in last minute for Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who's uh, feeling a little ill tonight, but we'll be talking about haunted and cursed objects in the next hour. Uh, now, back to Don uh, Schmidt. Uh, I was just wondering, Don, you know, when you go to these UFO conferences, and you've been to countless, I'm sure, and certainly Stanton as well, but there is a certain um, element of uh, these UFO conferences. Uh, let's say, how, how to put it, sometimes they, some some people get out a little over their skis a bit, meaning, you know, uh, they're not just about the data. They're, they're making some wildly speculative claims about, you know, someone claiming that they've time traveled to Mars and, right. and, you know, there's, there's a lot of that that I think undermines sort of the credibility uh, of the UFO arena, particularly, you know, when the mainstream media is paying attention. Did, was Stanton frustrated by that, that kind of discussion? You know, when, when people really sort of went, you know, over the bend, if you will? I don't know that I would use the word uh, frustration as much as that he tolerated the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, like, we, we, we have the annual festival coming up in Roswell now in, in just a matter of weeks, commemorating the 1947 incident. And for all the years we've had the uh, the festival, this would be the second time Stan hasn't been there. And the first time was when he had his heart surgery a few years ago. And even then, we, uh, we, we piped in a, a speaker phone and with an audience, you know, room full of people, you know, we brought Stan on in his condition and uh, brought him to tears that particular evening. And so I think because Stan knew he had the big story, that no matter what one would uh, proper, uh, as far as uh, 
proper as far as their own experiences or their own theories. That's all they were. In our case with Roswell, it's not a theory. We're talking historic fact. We're talking that there was indeed a press release that went out announcing that fact. All the witnesses, starting with Jess Marcel, just verified that first announcement. And so we just always looked at these were the all the, the wannabes and the people that were trying to become relevant within a room where Roswell essentially sucked all the air out of the room because it was the granddaddy of all cases. And I think in that confidence, that, that level of just uh, assuredness that Nothing was going to surpass Roswell unless somebody could present a piece of hardware, the real, you know, a piece of the, the actual ship, you know, from the, from the crash that uh, we had the story. And uh, so the, the, the suggest frustration would suggest that uh, we were on an even, you know, even keel, that we were in, in the same race together. And I think Stan always realized that we were in a separate race. And, with our, and our race was, again, with The Undertaker. It wasn't with others proposing their own UFO stories. Well put. Well put. What did Stanton make, I mean, in the last couple of years, you know, he at least he got to live to see some real headway being made, particularly with the mainstream media. There's been a real sea change in the way that they are now covering uh, the UFO ET issue, particularly, of course, since the New York Times article in December 2017. Yes, yes. Uh, was he, was he as sort of excited about that as I would imagine he might be? Well, we had often discussed the uh, very notion that, well, we see any type of disclosure. Will there be any type of eminent announcement in either your lifetime, Stan, or even in my lifetime, that type of thing? And I think we had long concluded that uh, the, the possibilities were were somewhat uh, remote. But you are you are absolutely correct, Richard, that there's certain, there seems to be a change in especially the media. But and what's, what's you know the amusing thing about the media is that well they're they're just trying to catch up. They're just cu- trying to come up to speed, so to speak, because you know they're just repeating everything we've been saying for all these years. It's like well yeah we told you so. And, and then you were treating us like this was just so much entertainment and uh, move on to the next story. I think you, you, you realize that it is, again, you're talking the biggest story of the millennium. And how can you not be interested? How can you not be captivated and uh, just fascinated by the possibilities? So I think in many respects, for Stan to have seen this now in the last the year, that he could be much more confident that he played a heavy hand in bringing us to that uh, that that point in the history of, of UFOs. That no one no one did more appearances, did more lectures, did more interviews than Stanton Friedman, and so he, in many ways, led led that effort. And as a result, I think. He leaves us in, in, in very good stead in that should it now happen, and uh, I still am doubtful that it will in my lifetime, but uh, I was wrong about Roswell being a skeptic, and I would love to be wrong about this. We have to re- we, 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 we remain cautiously optimistic 
that, as I often would hear, that the new order in the military wants this to come out, that they too are frustrated over the fact that the old order was not passing it down to them. They were taking it with them to their graves, as many of the high-ranking officers, uh, you know, the arbiters of the cover-up with Roswell, they took it with them. And to me, that's the, the greatest tragedy in all of mankind, the fact that a handful of people have decided for all of us. And so I, I love the fact that, you know, as one would say, that maybe now Stan has all the answers. But <laughs> I would like to believe Indeed. that he's now going to be pushing and giving us a little nudge once in a while in the right direction. Don, thank you so much. Wonderful tribute. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard, for the opportunity. I'd love to talk to you again soon, so look forward to it. We shall. Don Schmidt, UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson. Back with Ross Allison, Haunted Objects, when the Conspiracy Show continues. Liberty Mutual Insurance presents... And Doug... Is that your pet, Emu? He's my partner, Lemu. And we're here to tell you that Liberty Mutual customizes your car insurance, so you only pay for what you need. So is he only an Emu because it rhymes with Lemu, as in Liberty Mutual? Well, I won't... So this is just a clever way to get people to remember Liberty Mutual, huh? Kinda. Liberty, 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 Liberty. Only pay for what you need at LibertyMutual.com. Underwritten by Liberty Mutual Insurance Company and affiliates. Equal housing insurer. State laws apply. I want my own website, but I don't know where to start. Start at Pear. Pear offers hosting plans that are perfect for someone who's just starting out. But I'm not really tech savvy. Not to worry. Pear has WordPress hosting packages. What's WordPress? It's web software that even a beginner can use to create a beautiful website. So where do I start? Pear.com? Pear.com. As in, we make a perfect pair. Pear Network's web hosting. Tell your friends.